Everyone worships someone or something. Whatever you value most in life is your God. And everyone sacrifices time, energy, money, work for their God. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you open to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, as you know, we're studying the book of 1 and 2 Kings, and we'll dip into 1 and 2 Chronicles as well. Historically, context, it's been about 75 years since the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms under Rehoboam. The northern ten tribes were called Israel. The southern two tribes were called Judah. Uh, Ahab is currently Israel's seventh king. The northern ten tribes, he's their seventh king. He will prove to be the worst king in their entire history. So in the middle of Ahab and Jezebel, his Sidonian wife's evil reign, God raises up a prophet to speak for him named Elijah. And as you recall, last week we found out that Elijah, according to the word of the Lord, announces a three-year drought on Israel as punishment for their worship of Baal. Now Baal is the Canaanite god who supposedly controls the weather uh, rain, lightning, fertility, and that kind of thing. And since Israel believed that Baal controlled the rains, a multi-year drought from Yahweh would expose Baal as a fraud, as a false god, as an imposter. So King Ahab, of course, tries to kill Elijah, but God, as you remember, protects him, takes him out of the land to the brook Kareth on the east side of the Jordan and up into the actual region of Sidon and provides food for him in the middle of a famine and spends actually three years developing his faith. The whole point of this three-year drought was not just to discipline Israel, it was to strengthen Elijah's faith for the conflict to come, which is what we're going to look at today. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 18, verse 1. Now, it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, quote, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now, Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria. Jump down to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Verse 19. Now then. Send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Ashtaroth who eat at Jezebel's table. Here's the principle. Sinners often refuse to take responsibility for the trouble their own sin creates. I didn't say people that don't know the Lord only do this. I said sinners often refuse to take responsibility for the trouble their own sin creates. Ahab is a poster child for refusing to take responsibility. God puts a little interesting phrase in here. He says, the drought was very severe in Samaria. 
which is interesting. Samaria is the capital city of the northern ten tribes. It's also the palace of Ahab and Jezebel. And the drought is very severe there. Should have been a wake-up call, you think? Uh, Not so much. The last rains that fell were in March and April. Remember last time we talked about there are two sets of rains, two seasonal rains, March, April, and October, November. Two sets of rains. So the last rain that fell were in March and April. Six months later, Elijah shows up in October and says there's going to be a multi-year drought on the land. And at that time, God said, Elijah, go hide yourself. So he leaves the country. Now, there is a time to be private and absent, and there's also a time to be public and present. Three years pass, and now it's October again. So it's actually been three and a half years since there's been rain, and God tells Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab. It's time for your public ministry to recommence. And despite Ahab's plans to kill him, what do you hear? Elijah obeys immediately, goes and shows himself to Ahab. Now, Ahab and his chief administrator, his palace manager named Obadiah, travel throughout the land and they are looking for springs of water so that they can keep the livestock alive. It's interesting, Ahab is quite concerned about his livestock. F.B. Meyer said that Ahab was seeking for grass instead of seeking for God, which is probably true. Obadiah, interesting guy, there are 13 Obadiahs in the Old Testament, so this is probably not the author of the book of Obadiah. His name means servant of the Lord. I imagine every time Jezebel used that name, it just ground her, you know. He's a God-fearing man. He serves in a godless palace for evil rulers. Throughout the drought, Ahab's wife Jezebel has been systematically hunting down and slaughtering all the prophets of the Lord, literally. It's mass murder, it's genocide of God's prophets. At great risk, we find out that Obadiah has hid a hundred prophets in in a number of caves. By the way, there's 2,000 plus caves in Israel, so there's lots of places. And he's fed them with bread and water on the sly and kept them alive without uh, Jezebel's knowledge. Now, when they say prophets, this is not just people who predict the future. These are pastors. These are shepherds. These are the spiritual leaders of Yahweh in Israel. Jezebel is systematically exterminating them, and Obadiah has been protecting them, even though he works in the palace as Elijah's chief administrator. So God arranges a divine appointment between Elijah and Obadiah in an open field, just the two of them. And Elijah commands Obadiah, go tell Ahab, I'm here. Now, Obadiah recounts how exhaustively the search has been for Elijah. Ahab has been searching for this guy for three three years since he announced the drought. It got so bad that Ahab even went to foreign countries surrounding Israel and made them swear and sign an affidavit that he did not know where he was. So Elijah is at the very top of Ahab's most wanted list. So Ahab sees Elijah, the two of them together in an open field, and he immediately blames Elijah for the drought and the troubles Israel is experiencing. This is how twisted he is. Ahab worships Baal. He believes that Baal controls the weather. So Ahab thinks that Elijah has angered Baal. And therefore, in retaliation, Baal is calling down the drought on the land. So if Ahab kills Elijah, then Baal will be placated and the drought will end. So therefore, Elijah's 
been a hunted man by Baal, by Ahab, because Ahab wants him dead. Elijah confronts Ahab with the truth, which, of course, he does not accept. And the truth is, is that God is punishing Israel with the drought because Ahab has led the nation away from Yahweh and into idol worship. So Ahab is responsible for the drought, not Elijah. Now Elijah issues Ahab a command, interestingly, a prophet commanding a king, and the king obeys, and he says, look, you send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal that you feed, and the 400 prophets of Ashtaroth that Jezebel feeds. Now this is 850 prophets on their public dole, right? They, they live in the palace, and they subsidize them to support their religion. This is a battle between Yahweh and Baal. It's not really Baal. It's really Satan who is behind all idolatry to determine who is really God. And all Israel is going to witness this confrontation. It's crucial that everyone understands that God is the source of rain and not Baal. Interesting question. Why did God select Mount Carmel? as the place for this confrontation. Carmel comes from the root word meaning vineyard or orchard, and it refers to its great fertility. This is a limestone mountain range that starts with a little bump going into the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Haifa is, the current city of Haifa. It's 16 miles long, and it goes sort of south and west. It's a limestone mountain range, 16 miles long, 4 to 5 miles wide, about 1,800 feet at the high point. Mount Carmel is a strategic site located on the northern border of Israel and the southern border of, si of Sidon. So it is a borderland region, Sidon and Phoenicia to the north, Israel is to the south. It's a very strategic site. It was sacred to Baal worshippers. From the top of the mountain, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. All the rain that falls on Israel is sourced, ultimately, out of the Mediterranean Sea, that neck of the woods. So Baal worshippers would sacrifice and pray for rain on the top of Mount Carmel, and the nation of Israel also used Mount Carmel as a sacred site to worship Yahweh on top of the mount. So it's a perfect place for a battle between the gods. This is probably among, along with the Hula Valley, the most productive agricultural region in Israel. It's very fertile and has been used extensively for agriculture for thousands of years since ancient times. It's also been the key site for multiple battles. As you recall, Deborah and Barak from Judges defeated uh, the Canaanites in this valley. Gideon routed the Midianites here. Saul battled the Philistines in this valley. Both Solomon and Josiah fought the Egyptians here. As a matter of fact, there have been over 34 major battles recorded in this valley. Napoleon once said that this was the perfect battlefield. And as a matter of fact, the book of Revelation records that the battle called Armageddon, Armageddon, or the battle of Megiddo, will be fought here. Actually, the battle will be for Jerusalem, but the staging ground uh, will be uh, in this valley. It's a wonderful, wonderful place uh, to grow agricultural and apparently to kill people because it's a very, very popular... No, seriously, it's been a historical battleground for years and years and years, generations. Verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, quote, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Don't you find that rather interesting? Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now then, let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put fire under it. Then you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people say, that is a good idea. Here's the principle. No one is neutral towards God. Everyone either submits or rebels against him. No one is neutral toward God. Everyone either submits or rebels against him. Now, it probably took a couple of weeks at least to get all the people to Carmel. Remember, in that area, you couldn't take Amtrak up there or whatever. You actually had to walk, and you had to send a message to people that there was going to be a meeting up there, so you gathered your provisions and you walked up there. So probably a couple of weeks. We're not sure how big the crowd is, but apparently it was a crowd of thousands. Some of them might have come out of just desperation. The, the drought is so bad, they want some solution. Some might have come out of just simple curiosity. A battle between the gods sounds like entertainment, so they might have come for that reason. Apparently, Jezebel did not send the 400 prophets of Asherah. They stayed with her at Jezreel, because there's only a record of the 450 prophets of Baal. And these 450 prophets of Baal hated Elijah. Their god, Baal, who supposedly controlled the rain, has been humiliated for three years, because there's been no Rain, despite their best efforts. So Elijah now confronts Israel with their double-mindedness. He says, how long are you going to hesitate between two opinions? It literally means like a bird hopping between branches. You ever seen a bird hop between branches, hop between limbs on a tree? It literally means to dance between two opinions. Can't make a decision. They came to a fork in the road and they tried to take both at the same time which is, of course, impossible. You know, you get on an elevator, there's a button that says up, and there's a button that says down, but there's not a button that says undecided. <laughs> Just saying, right? Israel was behaving like a spouse that wanted to stay in their marriage, but they also wanted to hold on to their outside lovers. Now, a marriage partner has every right to expect exclusive devotion from their spouse, and so does God. However, Israel did not want to give up her lovers, her idols, but they wanted God and they wanted Baal, both. When Elijah confronted Israel with their double-mindedness, no one answered him. They would not defend their position or they wouldn't change it. And the reason is they didn't believe there was a significant difference between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, the God of the Sidonians. They had no conviction. They were lukewarm. And what did Jesus say in Revelation about lukewarm people? He said, I'm going to puke you out of my mouth. Elijah said, make a decision. Joshua made a decision when they came across into the land of Canaan. He said, as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord, Yahweh. Jesus said what? If you're not for me, you're against me. There is no neutrality toward God. When you go out in the world and you look at people coming your direction, 
family, friends, strangers, whatever, one thing you can know. Either they're for God or they're against him. Period. There is no neutrality. God is sovereign and you either are aligned with him or you're rebelling against him. People say, well, God just doesn't, I, I just don't have a lot of need for him. That's rebellion. You're basically saying, I can live without him. You're breathing his air. Your next breath comes from him. Your EEG is working, kind of, because of him. And you're saying, I can live independently of him. Now, that's SOS, stuck on stupid, right? Spiritually, right? So there's no neutrality with God. And Israel's trying to have it both ways. And Elijah says, not working. So Elijah now proposes an empirical test designed to prove empirically who really is God, Yahweh or Baal. Now, this is not Elijah's idea. This is God's plan. Get an altar and put wood on it. Take two oxen, slaughter them, cut them in pieces. Put one on one altar for Baal, one on one altar for Yahweh. No one puts fire under the altar, under their sacrifice. Both pray to their God. And the God who answers their prayers by sending fire from heaven to burn up their sacrifice that one is God. It is empirically provable, right? And once, everybody, once he spelled out the terms of the contest, the people go, okay, it's a good idea. So Elijah is putting Yahweh and himself on the line. This is witnessed by thousands of people, including 450 prophets who would like him dead, as well as Ahab. If God doesn't come through, Elijah is dead. The odds are 450 to 1. However... God has been building Elijah's faith on a daily basis for over three years. He's experienced God's miracle of provision, both in Kareth Brook and at Zarephath. He's actually been used by God to raise a young man from the dead. God has sent fire from heaven many, many times in Israel's past. So God has spent three years preparing Elijah for this moment. By the way, God is even now preparing you for what he has in your future. Some of you, you're probably saying, I don't want to know if this is just prep. Oof, the real test is coming. Uh-huh, it always is. You don't know what tomorrow brings, but your father does. And he knows what you need today to get you ready for tomorrow. And if he told you, you would run in fear, Right? That's why he doesn't tell us. He says, trust me for today. I will show you tomorrow when you need to know. He's a father. Verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they leaped about the altar which they had made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Here's the principle. Idolatry is irrational. Humans created by God who refuse to worship their creator end up worshiping false gods which do not exist. 
Idolatry is irrational. Humans created by God who refuse to worship their creator end up worshiping false gods which do not exist. Everyone worships someone or something. Whatever you value most in life is your God. Whatever you value most in life is your God. And everyone sacrifices time, energy, money, work for their God. For some, the God is family, money, status, power, sex, stuff, health, fill in the blanks. But everybody worships. God created humanity as compulsive worshipers, but we were designed to worship our Creator because we are creatures. Romans 1 says, if you refuse to worship the Creator, you wind up worshiping insects and snakes and idols made representing the creation, which means you worship something less than yourself. Now, is that not folly? Of course. The 450 prophets of Baal, now they worshiped, they took their ox, they slaughtered it, cut it in pieces, put the wood on the altar, put the ox on the altar. By the way, there's a fair amount of dwarf oaks and olive trees up there, so there's, the wood is plentiful on Mount Carmel. And from 9 to noon, three hours, they implored Baal to answer their prayer. They danced, they whirled like dervishes, they shouted, they screamed. They had an active prayer life. It was intense, right? I mean, this, this was not, you know, let's pray for five minutes and then we're done. They were praying intensely and yelling and screaming and hollering and dancing for three hours. However, there was no response, no voice, no acknowledgement, because no one was there. It's like yelling at a corpse and expecting it to respond. By the way, that, that, that no acknowledgement, that's exactly what it refers to earlier in Scripture. A corpse has no ability to respond. Well, that's what they have here. There's no one there to respond. And at noon, Elijah begins to poke fun of them a little bit. And he's highlighting the human frailty of their so-called God. He said, maybe Baal is occupied, which means he's thinking. He's meditating. Well, a God who needs to think certainly is not omniscient, right? I mean, he doesn't know it all. He's gone aside, which means he's relieving himself in the restroom. Your God needs to relieve himself. It's a pretty fragile God, right? He's got an active bladder. He's gone on a journey means he's traveling. He's not available because he's away from home. Sidonian sailors thought that Baal was with them on their ships. Elijah's kind of hinting that. He says, maybe Baal is on board with one of your ships. He's unavailable for you now. He's gone on vacation. You know, he's not answering your phone call. Or maybe he's napping. Maybe he's tired. He needs to sleep. So you need to yell a little louder and wake him up from his nap, right? So they amp it up. They not only scream and dance, they cut themselves until their own blood runs out. The idea behind this is that you slaughter an animal and the life is in the blood. So if you slaughter an animal, you sacrifice an animal, you are laying down the life of that animal and that blood is precious in the sight of the God and it will move the God to pity because you made the sacrifice. However, if the God doesn't answer, maybe you should shed your own blood because that will impress them even more that you're now sacrificing your own blood. Of course, the ultimate expression of this is human sacrifice, which many 
religions have practiced in the past. And despite their best efforts, they're shedding their own blood, Baal doesn't answer because Baal doesn't exist. Understand the source behind all of this. All idolatry is demonic in origin. All idolatry. Satan craves the worship that belongs to God alone. And he deceives people into worshiping anything instead of God their creator. Even the figment of their own imagination. Read Romans 1 if you want to cross-check that. I would imagine that the spiritual battle in the heavenly places at this moment was intense. I can imagine Satan was struggling with all his might to intervene and to respond so that the people of Israel would be deceived into believing that Baal was real. But obviously, God being sovereign stopped any demonic response. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord had come, saying, Israel, so be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a branch of a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the oxen pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four pitchers of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and also filled the trench with water. Here's the principle. The altar of sacrifice is the place where holy God meets with sinful people. The altar of sacrifice is the place where a holy God meets with sinful people. Now, Elijah is transparent. He says, come near to me. I want you to see and hear and observe what God is going to do. The very first thing that Elijah does is repair the altar of God that had been torn down, interestingly enough, not by the followers of Baal, but by God's own people. They tore it down. We know that from the next chapter. Elijah took 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, one stone per tribe, and made an altar to the Lord as God commanded Moses. What that means is in God's sight, Israel spiritually is still one nation. Politically, they're two nations, but spiritually, they're one nation. The 12 tribes of Israel worshiping God, building an altar. Now, the altar is the place where God meets with his worshipers. The word altar means high place or burning place, which indicates a burnt offering, a sacrifice. An altar is the place where sacrifices are offered to God, symbolizing the complete dedication of the worshiper to God. That's what an altar is for. It's where a sacrifice is made to symbolize the complete dedication. A sacrifice is something that costs the worshiper. It's a sacrifice, right? A sacrifice means that the worshiper gives up something of value, and they're willing to experience the loss of that because they are indicating that they value God more than what they gave up. Does that make sense? If, the, if you don't sacrifice anything, what you're saying is the God you worship isn't worth anything. When a worshiper offers a sacrifice, they are saying, whatever I gave up, I value God more than what I gave up. Now in that place, an altar was the place where often a valuable animal was sacrificed. Elijah built an altar with a sacrifice on it in order to bring Israel to what? Meet God. The whole point of the altar was to meet God at that point. 
Now, the ultimate and final altar is what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ sacrificed himself on our behalf, died in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. And since he paid the sin debt with his own blood, we can now be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And so these human sacrifices in Israel looked forward to the final and ultimate sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the altar on which they burned the sacrifice was ultimately represented by the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't somebody else sacrificed, right, an animal. It's the king of glory, God himself, sacrificed himself for the benefit of people because he valued us more than his own life. Amazing grace. Elijah made a trench around the altar, all four sides, right? Had a trench. Apparently, two measures of seed is about six gallons. So each side would hold six gallons, about 25 gallons. But he gives us a little more description. He says they used four pitchers of water, and they did this three times. Typically, that's be 12 pitchers of water, one for each of the 12 tribes. The biggest pots of water in Israel held about eight and a half gallons which is about 65 pounds. You can't carry much more than that. The smaller pots are about half that size, about four gallons. So if you assume the smaller pot size, Elijah saturated the altar and sacrificed with about 50 gallons of water. He's making it very, very difficult for the altar to burn. Right? He's saturating it with water to, to make it difficult for God to do what God is going to do. And I want you to notice that everything he's doing is transparent, is being scrutinized, not just by God's people, but by God's enemies, right? The 450 prophets. So this is all very transparent and very uh, observable. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, quote, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench." When the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Verse 40. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Barkishon and slew them there. Here's the principle. God intervenes in human history to reveal who he is and to draw people into a relationship with himself. God intervenes in human history to reveal who he is and to draw people into a relationship with himself. Now, the time of the evening sacrifice was about 3 p.m. Baal's worshipers have had six hours now of, of uh, yelling and screaming and trying to get Baal's attention. There's been zero response. Elijah builds the altar, and he offers a very simple prayer. As compared to six hours of praying, his is less than a minute. He asked God of Israel, the creator of the universe, to answer his prayer request so that four things would occur. There's four reasons he's praying. Number one, let it be known that you are God in Israel. In other words, demonstrate to your people of Israel that you alone are God, the almighty creator who owns and controls everything. Number two, let it be known that I am your servant 
and I have done all these things according to your word. Elijah wanted Israel to know that none of this is my idea. The drought was not my idea. The famine was not my idea. This contest is not my idea. I am simply doing what God told me to do. I want you to know that I am representing God and only representing God. Number three, that this people may know that you are God. In other words, that the nation of Israel would know by personal experience that the God of Avraham, Isaac, and Isaac, their God, Jacob, their personal God, the God in history, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who brought them into the land, this is the same God who controls the universe. Their personal God is infinite God. And God is both infinite and personal. And lastly, that you would turn their hearts back again. Israel, Elijah wanted Israel to turn away from their idol worship and turn back to worship and love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Israel wanted Israel, Elijah wanted Israel to be reconciled to God in the same way that a spouse who chooses to turn back to their marriage partner. God wanted this relationship reconciled. Elijah wanted this relationship reconciled, and that was his prayer that God would reveal himself at this moment so that Israel would declare their loyalty and love the Lord their God with all their heart and forsake their lovers, their idols. It says the fire of the Lord fell. Now, this is the same fire we've seen before. This is the Shekinah glory of God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Remember when God called Moses, this bush is burning? And it keeps burning, but it doesn't burn up. The Shekinah glory is the glory of God, the fire of God that went before Israel in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. This Shekinah glory is the same fire from God that fell from heaven and lit the first offering on the altar when they dedicated the tabernacle under Moses. It's the same Shekinah glory that fell from heaven and lit the dedicatory uh, offering on the altar when Solomon dedicated the temple. We talked about that earlier. So there's history with the fire of God. It says the fire of God fell. Doesn't indicate what the fire looked like. Doesn't indicate how long it lasted, but the effects were staggering. Here's what stunned me. The fire is so intensely hot that it consumes the ox and the wood, the dust, and evaporated the water. I got that. But it also says it completely consumed the stones of the altar. Now, the heat required to melt limestone rock is about 2,580 degrees Celsius, about 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature required to vaporize melted lime, vaporize, is about 3,620 degrees Celsius. The surface of the sun is about 5,500 degrees Celsius. Before, there was a stone altar with an ox on it, and now there is empty, charred, burnt patch of ground. Nothing on it. God obviously protected his people, because if that kind of heat showed up, everybody within 50 miles would be incinerated. So we don't know how God did it, but we do know that he demonstrated his almighty infinite power in front of them. And the people, of course, got it. They said, the Lord, he is God. Now, in your Bible, the Lord is probably in all caps. That means Yahweh. 
Anytime you see the word LORD in all caps in your scripture, that is the covenant name of God. That is the name that God told Moses, you are to tell Israel, this is my name, Yahweh. This is my personal covenant name with you. And it literally means, I am who I am. It refers to God's eternal self-existence. He is completely independent of anybody. He is completely not dependent on anyone. He exists inside himself from eternity past into eternity future. It's referring to his character. And the name God, Lord God, Lord is all caps. God is the, is the Hebrew Elohim, which means supreme one or mighty one. First verse in the Bible says, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That is the name of God referring to his supreme might, his almighty authority, and his uh, supremacy over the entire universe. So when Israel cried out, The Lord, he is God, they were saying, Yahweh, the personal God of Israel, the God we know, is not a local and limited God. He is the creator, the supreme ruler over the entire creation. They finally understood who their God was. And we need to be reminded of that as well. We have many, many, many people who know better who fail to understand the infinite nature of God and the infinite goodness of God. And they think something's got to give. The, the serious philosophical question is, God exists, God is infinitely powerful, God is infinitely good, and yet evil exists. How do you square that circle, right? Well, there's been a lot of people that have said, well, either God's not all-powerful or else he's not all-good. That is not true. He is all-powerful and he is all-good, and is in infinite wisdom he has allowed evil to exist. He's not the author of it, he does not approve of it, but he gives you and I free will. And we can choose to do evil, just like Lucifer did back in eternity past. So Israel finally got that their personal God is the only true God, the creator God, the supreme ruler of all the universe. Now, the Mosaic law commanded that anyone who led Israel away from worshiping Yahweh and into idolatry was to be executed. Anyone, even if it was a family member. Furthermore, Jezebel has murdered multiple of God's prophets, and retribution was just. So Elijah had the prophets of Baal executed at the foot of the mountain at the Brook Kishon. We in our era have a real hard time with that because we tolerate evil. We do tolerate evil. Our nation embraces it, not just our nation, the world. It's the nature of the satanic-inspired system that we tolerate evil, and God does not tolerate evil. He does not judge it right now because he's merciful. He wants to give people time to repent. He's not willing that any should perish. But he still hates evil. Verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went out to eat and drink. But Elijah went to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. So we went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, 
and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. When God's people repent from their sins, God delights in answering their prayers and blessing them. Let me restate that principle. When God's people repent from their sins, God delights in answering their prayers and blessing them. Now, Elijah told Ahab, rain is on the way even before there was a cloud in the sky. And, of course, Ahab went up to party, and Elijah goes up to pray. He crouches down with his head between his knees, almost a fetal position. What is so amazing and and exemplary for us is, like Daniel, Elijah is not passive about God's promises. He doesn't say, well, God promised Wayne, let's just wait for it. He prays that God will do what he promised to do. He says, Lord, bring rain just like you promised. Daniel did the same thing. Not rain, but he prays that God will perform what he's promised. I think that's imperative. I highly recommend that you pray the promises of God. Go through the scripture, and where there's promises, pray them. Ask God to perform what he's promised. Believe me, he always keeps his word. He delights it when his people ask him to do what he's already told them he's going to do. God's purpose for the drought was to reveal himself as the one and true God and turn Israel's heart back to him. That had been accomplished. So now that Israel had repented and turned back to him and the prophets of Baal were slain and evil was removed, God now is free to send rain and bless them. Now, Elijah had a servant. He sent to the top of the mountain ridge where he could see the Mediterranean Sea. By the way, when you're on Carmel, which I've been on a couple times, you can see the Mediterranean Sea quite easily. And he sends and he prays how many times? Seven times. He says, scan the horizon and see if you can see anything. Now, this is an example of persistent prayer. One of the things we're going to, we always talk about in this class is Pray, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. I don't care how many times you pray. You will pray until you die for the things that you're passionate about. You never give up because God never gives up. You may not see God working. I want you to know that 99.99% of what God does, we never see. But occasionally, he pulls back the curtain and gives you a little glimpse of something's going on. You know, you pray for your loved ones and you think, they're just... They're just, you know, they're just, I can't even say, right? <laughs> and then some will fall out of their mouth. You know, your children or grandchildren or niece, nephew, co-workers, people pray for, and you go, oh, there was a little insight there. Did, did I really hear that? Did, did they really say that? Maybe God's working. Of course he's working. He's always working. That's why you pray. It's subversive. Because the Holy Spirit can go where you can't. So you pray and the Holy Spirit arranges their circumstances to do what? Draw them to the Lord. And you're praying for that promise. You're praying for that promise. And you bang on heaven's door because the Lord hears any prayer that is prayed according to his will. And what's his will? That no one should perish. When you pray for the salvation of someone, I promise you, you're praying in alignment with God's will. He wants to answer that prayer. So the seventh time, the servant reports, there's a small cloud. I mean, not much, the size of a man's hand. And sometimes you see these little indications that God hears. Yeah, there's a little cloud, you know, coming up. And Elijah knew instantly that God had answered his prayer and that rain was on them. He told his servant, go to Ahab's party, which is also, by the way, on top of Mount Carmel, 
and tell him to get his chariot ready and get down the mountain as soon as possible. A very severe thunderstorm was coming, and the rainfall would be so heavy that it might overflow the Kishon Brook. The Kishon Brook runs parallel with a mountain range, and if that thing overflows, you're not going to be able to cross it, and you won't be able to get back to Jezreel. Now, if you follow Haifa way up in the corner, and you follow the mountain range 16 miles, you see Jezreel is there at the, at the tail end of that mountain range. That is the summer palace of Ahab, and that's where Jezebel is right now with 400 prophets of the Asherah. That's his winter palace, and it's the eastern end of the valley. It's about 17 miles, quite a distance. And what we have is another example of God's endorsement of Elisha's ministry because God empowers him to outrun the horses all the way back to Jezreel. So what do we learn from this? This is not just an exhibition of God's power for curiosity's sake to demonstrate a spectacle so that people could be impressed. It was a spiritual battle for the hearts and minds and loyalty of God's people who had forsaken him and been seduced by Baal, who does not exist. They worship something called the figment of their imagination. The truth of it is, friends, you will either worship the Creator, or you will worship something inside His creation. That's all there is. There is either God, the Creator of everything, or you worship something inside the creation. You were designed, we were designed to worship the Lord alone. Satan's job, as he sees it, his mission is to seduce and deceive people into worshiping something other than God alone. Because he knows that alone will lead them into hell. And we have a culture that worships almost anything. And when you refuse to worship God, Romans 1 says, God turns you over and you have a depraved mind so you become foolish even though you think you're wise. You and I have the Holy Spirit of God by His grace and when you look at some of the stuff that falls out of the mouths of people in this culture and passes for wisdom, it's not wisdom. It is folly believed to be wisdom by people who are rebelling against Almighty God. Let's go back and review the key principles. Number one, sinners often refuse to take responsibility for the trouble their own sin creates. By the way, that applies to Christians as well. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Defending your sin like Adam did by saying, God, you gave me that woman and, and she's the problem, that's just pure blame shifting. That's him not stepping up and saying, I'm a sinner, I own it, right? Number two, no one is neutral toward God. Everyone either submits to him or rebels against him. And by the way, every morning you wake up, that's a choice. Are you going to submit to God before you get out of bed? Or do you think you've got the juice to run your life today without him? Do you think you can actually walk to the coffee pot without him? Or elsewhere, right? No, of course not. So what should you do before you get out of bed? Thank you, Lord, I'm awake. Kind of. The brain cells are working. Kind of, right? You know? Indicate your humility and your necessity and your submission to it. Number three, idolatry is irrational. Humans created by God to worship him. Those that refuse to worship their creator wind up worshiping false gods which do not exist. And Israel had been doing that for a number of years. 
Number three, the altar of sacrifice is the place where holy God meets with sinful people. We have steps in the front of the church. It's the altar, right? Oftentimes when we have an invitation, we'll invite people to come to the altar, right? To do what? To do business with God. What does that mean? It means you are laying down your will and asking for his will. You are saying, Lord, here's my problem, here's my pride, here's my arrogance, here's my ignorance, here's everything that I can't figure out, and I'm laying that down and I'm asking you to meet me here and I'm willing to sacrifice everything I am in order to receive everything you are. God intervenes in human history to reveal who he is and to draw people into a relationship with himself. When God intervenes in your life, he's showing you who he is. And you know how he does that most often? Through problems, through suffering, through troubles, through situations that we cannot fix on our own. So when he fixes them, we go, wow, look what God did. He fixed that and I couldn't fix it. Well, guess what? If you could fix it on your own, you wouldn't even bring it to him. You would not know his power to solve problems if he didn't let you have problems. The other thing, God always solves problems in a way that brings him the greatest glory. You may have problems in your life and you're going, God, you know, it'd be really nice if you'd fix this problem. God says, I have a solution for that. I will fix that problem when I receive maximum glory for the solution. And we're going, no, 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 hold, hold, hold it. You should solve the problem so I have minimal pain. I mean, that's really what it's about. I mean, I should not have to go through with this because I'm special, right? God says, no, I solve the problem so I receive maximum glory by you and also by the watching world who I'm drawing into a relationship with myself. And lastly, when God's people repent from their sin, God delights in answering their prayers and abundantly blessing them. The heart of the Father toward us is beyond our understanding. Beyond our understanding. Thank you for being here. Thank you for paying attention. Uh, next week, read ahead. We'll be uh, going ahead to the next chapter. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.